Hello, and welcome to Rise of the Data Cloud. Today's episode features an interview with Bill Michaels, Executive Vice President of Product and Engineering at the Trade Desk. Bill has had an amazing career. Previously, he has served as a Senior Director of Product Management at Yahoo, COO of Factual Inc., and CDO of Foursquare. In this episode, Bill talks about how you can be a great leader, the advantages of the cloud, the future of the ad tech industry, and much more. So please enjoy this interview between Bill Michaels and your host, Steve Hamm. Okay, Bill, it's great to see you today. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here, and thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, many of our listeners probably aren't familiar with the Trade Desk or even with the demand-side platform sector within the ad tech business. So I think it would be helpful if you would explain how the industry works and the role in it the Trade Desk plays. Yeah, absolutely. I'll step back a little bit and at a higher level and try to sort of continuously narrow down what exactly we do. Okay. But Trade Desk is the largest independent demand-side platform, or DSP, like you mentioned. What that means is that we're, we're software for agencies and brands to make data-driven decisions on the digital media purchases they, they do on the open internet. Our clients are Fortune 500, and that sort of the types of inventory or the channels we buy in are things like desktop mobile, audio, CTV, and, and even things like out of home. Uh, now, well, wait, the, wait, explain that. I don't know what that is. So the broader ad tech industry is a real-time marketplace where publishers offer ad space or what we call inventory that is purchased by a buyer through a bidded auction that, that happens in milliseconds. So every time you open up a new page, that generates a piece of ad space. That's what we call a piece of inventory that goes into an exchange where DSPs look at that and then decide if they would like to purchase that through a bidded auction. Now, it's not only web pages, it's also in mobile apps. It's also on in audio, so things like music apps and podcasts. It's also more and more so on connected TV. So when you watch an ad through, I don't know, Peacock or Hulu, one of those, that, that's also part of what we call inventory. And, and also a new channel, which is, is growing is out of home. Out of home is is just shorthand for billboards. So it's it's Good sort old of fashioned tr- billboards. Yeah, it's it's a it think of that as a that's a piece of advertising inventory, just like what you see that ad will scroll through in a feed in, in a mobile app or where you see on a, a commercial on TV. It's just another piece of inventory. It just happens to be in the physical world. Those are transacted on now programmatically. Those are delivered with digitally and those are bought based on real time decisioning and data. So that larger, I guess, landscape is what we call the programmatic industry, meaning that the ad inventory is purchased through a set of standards in this bidded marketplace that is transacted on. To give you a sense of the scale, we trade desk look at about 13 million ad opportunities a second, and then we buy several hundred thousands of those. And is... The Trade Desk, the largest player in DSP? We call it the largest independent DSP. I see. There, are, there are several DSPs out there. And then advertisers can also purchase digital media through a walled garden, which would be something like a Facebook or a Google. And to make it also more confusing, Google also operates a DSP. Oh, I see. Well, let's do a compare and contrast. 
how does the business you're in compare with the advertising models of Google and Facebook, the, 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 the main Google model and the, and the Facebook model? What advantages do you offer advertisers, ad agencies over these other models? Right. Yeah, so we purchase inventory on the open internet. The closed environments we refer to as walled gardens and Facebook and Google are, are big examples of that. They're also smaller walled gardens. So there's Twitter and there's Snapchat and, and Pinterest would, would be examples of that. Now, the distinction there is Facebook and Google and those other apps or, or publishers there, they are both the creator of that content and the seller of it, right? Facebook, we don't create news websites we don't uh you know we don't create tv shows and we don't create mobile apps we help those that do monetize them in, in the best way they can if you're an advertiser and you're buying through a walled garden there's other distinctions too so you're buying from the creator of the content but you're also using their tools which are a little different from what the standard programmatic tools so when you buy you buy on them you get aggregate reports back so meaning that what you spend, you don't necessarily get what we call log level data back. So you can't do what we call frequency capping across them. So for instance, a purchase uh, through a DSP, you can make sure you're touching some, some de-identified or way of uh, some ID on the user in, a, in sort of a privacy safe way, but to make sure you're not touching them more than 10 times a week, something like that. Now, if you do that through a walled garden, you don't have that level of identity across platforms. So you can't sort of manage that across, say, Facebook, Google, and a CTV or, a, or Twitter or something like that. That's one. The other is, is that the, what you get back, the number of people who saw it, whether or not they converted, things like that, those are all done at an aggregate level. So you just get a dashboard of what the exposure was there. So you're saying your model allows for richer personalization? I wouldn't say it's, I think personalization is you're able to do that on, on all these platforms. Right. I think our model is a broader set of properties. It's not just one or two that they, that they operate. It allows the advertiser to buy on that broader set with, it, with using one tool without having to sort of be restricted right. to say the, the Facebook or the Google tools. It allows for more detailed reporting on how accurate they were and who saw those ads. Yeah, those those are a few uh, standout I, I examples. No, I think that's really clear now. Hey, why don't you walk us through an example right now of a scenario of how your platform serves customers? Say, there's a brand, Brand X, they come to you. What's the process that they engage? You engage with them and, and, and the results they get. Sure, sure. Okay, so let, let's use an example. Uh, I'll, I'll start with toothpaste. So somebody, we have a CPG brand comes in, they're looking to sell toothpaste. But what they do is they, they come into the platform, they set goals on what they're looking to do. Goals can range from a few things. It could be from actual driving the sales. It could also be just around awareness, things like that. So some products are not as prone to frequent sales, like, a, like auto as opposed to toothpaste, right? So you're going to get general awareness, maybe that metric as opposed to actual conversions or, or sales. They'll choose their goals. They'll set budgets. They'll leverage data that we can use to help them, but that could be their own data that they have. Maybe they have emails based on 
previous purchasers of their toothpaste or, or their product. Maybe they have third-party data that they've gotten through, through other relationships. They could leverage data that we would have in our data marketplace. They could also set the types of channels they're interested in. So audio, CTV, display, and all that. And th- then they would also say, hey, we want you to help us, right? So we have, a, we have an AI tool known as COA that helps you build a campaign based and, and make suggestions and guide that campaign for you. So it's, it's a very powerful tool. So a lot of our product and improvements around UX is helping you guide that sort of like, you know, we're giving you a, we're putting you in the cockpit of a, of a, of a rocket ship there. And we want to make sure that you don't have to work every dial for, for it necessarily for you, for it to work for you. So you could, you could, you could say, look, you do this for me. We have a wizard that helps walk you through, like, these are what we suggest based on that goals and the data you have access to. And you could say, I like that, but I'm going to maybe trim it a little or add other things to it. So we sort of more and more, we're automating pieces of it for you to, to uh, make it as seamless as possible. Okay. And then once you do that, you start it. But the great thing is, is that it's constantly learning and recalibrating, right? So the, these campaigns can run from weeks to months, and it's not just that's it. You forget about it. Like while, while it's going on, we, we're seeing what's working. We're seeing what is translating into a sale or or whatever that goal happens to be. And then we're we're doubling down in those areas and we're reallocating into the tactics and the data sets and the channels that are working. So it's constantly self-learning and, and getting better and better at what's working. And then at the end, you get a report to see how, how you performed against your goals. Well, that's a great, a great description of the process. Now, I understand that you're new to the company, relatively new. Please, if you would, tell us what your role is and where you see the company's product and engineering strategy going over the coming months. Right. Good question on that. Okay, so my role is EVP of product and engineering. I've been here about 15 months, and I I guess the, how do I describe my role is I help lead a global team that we build and iterate on our platform so we can make the best product for our clients. And that means things we can do now, but things we're also planning for and gearing up to build for next year and the year after, and then sort of laying the, the groundwork for that and identifying dependencies around that. We also make sure that the, the platform operates and doesn't go down and lots right, of other right. things re- related to that where we're looking at so much data and so much volume at a millisecond basis. Right. So we ship product every week. We have a roadmap that a lot of work goes into sort of distilling requests from all of our clients and trying to understand what, what the market wants. We learn from our relationships. We have lots of relationships like on the from publishers and what we call supply side partners. We have lots of relationships with data partners. So we're constantly sort of observing, distilling, trying to understand where, where things are headed and what we need to be doing now to build the best product for, for our customers. Then we also look at updates in technology and capabilities, just because we we deal so much with processing large amounts of data that we have to be world-class there in terms of efficiency, in terms of how we're leveraging that data actually for learning and machine modeling and improving our COA, which I mentioned before and other things like that, like has to always be getting better. And that's just table stakes. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the ed tech business is pretty mature in, in one sense. I mean, the, the, they're very sophisticated capabilities, but at the same time, it's still rapidly changing, right? Yeah, it's, it's not uh, it's not uh, idle by, at, at all, right? So 
yeah, it's there's so many different things that are happening, whether it's requests from clients, consumer expectations, regulatory changes, privacy changes, things like that. It's 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 constantly evolving. But I, I would say like at a very high level, the fundamental things are sort of stay the same, which is brands, advertisers, and agencies on their behalf want to win hearts and minds of of, of consumers, right? And that's that's happened forever, back to radio, back to print, and even before then, yellow pages, things like that. And it's always been there. And that's how they grow businesses. That's how they establish a brand. And that's how they sort of create that dialogue. On the other hand, the publishers, and that could be a developer of a, a mobile app, or that could be a TV show or a CTV app, a website, they engage with users and offer them a service. And in exchange, they get access to to their their time and their eyeballs and then some aspects of data around them. And there's a value exchange that happens there too. Your time and sometimes it's money, whether that could be Netflix or New York Times that have a subscription, but it also could be pieces of your identity, like a logged in, a way to understand who you are and treat that in a safe way. And that value exchange happens and allows for that publisher to serve relevant advertising to you to, to pay for the service. The way I think of it is those those are sort of like core tenants of our business that hasn't changed, but there's so much going on in between on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis that that's constantly changing that to deliver against those requires a lot of work, a lot, very large engineering teams, very large product teams, and data it science. It sounds teams. like a lot of stress to me, I got to tell you. <laughs> a lot of stress on leaders and also on on programmers, engineers, stuff like that. Now, you worked previously for Factual and Yahoo. What kind of management and leadership lessons did you learn there that you're applying to your job at the trade desk? Good question. Yeah, so I think everyone sort of constantly evolves and over time you generate or you sort of gravitate towards your own style, but but there's probably, you're constantly learning and getting better, hopefully. And I think the things I learned and took with me, it's probably some sort of patchwork of what I see or what I like, or someone who was a manager for me or someone I saw interact with a team that I liked. And I, you know, over time, maybe subconsciously or something, you take up pieces of it and you develop your own style. But, you know, I'd say some of the main concepts, it all starts with finding and hiring and retaining amazing people, giving them the right tools to do their job, but also give them the right agency, like don't tell them what to do. Tell them, make sure you sort of paint a very strong and, and clear strategic vision, but let them let them have the agency, let them have the sort of canvas in front of them to, to work on the things and, and make those decisions and have a, a rewarding career or a rewarding day at work where they're right. they're in a state where they're problem solving and they're doing what you what you hired them to do. So sort of get out of their way and, and, and let them do that. The, the other thing that I've noticed is that companies all develop a unique culture and and set of values. They're always a little different. And some of that comes from the founder and the CEO, which totally makes sense. I I could say that coming to Trade Desk, I was excited to see us live uh, with our values. These are things like we're pretty, I guess, transparent about them. And we, we, we bring in people and we sort of explain what they are, but things like vision, grit, agility, full-hearted generosity, openness. And I, I think when I was younger, I was a little more cynical about these, what do they mean? But as you get, as you see teams work and you see people gravitate to sort of cultures that that they can um, do themselves in and, and that fit with their values, I, I think they, I realized more and more that 
they are really important. They sort of are self-selecting and they you find people that want to work in those type of environments. So that's the other thing over time is that how, how important culture is and, and establishing a set of values that are that everyone appreciates and is, uh, you know, adopts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they call those things like soft skills or things like that, but values really guide a company. They, they're the, the foundation upon which it's built. So I'm glad right. to hear that the trade desk really has that kind of strong foundation. Hey, let's, let's get into, into some data conversations now. So when and why did the trade desk move its data to the cloud? Yeah, so we deal with a ton of data, right? A lot of that is real time, and a lot of that is in batch mode, and 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 not necessarily in real time. So we've we've adopted a really sort of what I think is clever and, and ever changing and evolving sort of hybrid strategy, so that that 13 million QPS, which is queries per second, that 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 we look at requires a lot of transaction that we have to make decisions. We have to make decisions that that can't be in the cloud because some of that has to be on-prem. Some of that has to be in the cloud, but next to geographically where those those responses can happen so quick. So that that was part of our initial decision is we needed the cloud cloud providers to help us get geographically close to where those users are, right? We didn't want to have to necessarily operate on-prem solutions next to all these and that would the cloud providers help us get there. And it's evolved over over the years, and more and more so. I think we're we're pushing more and more to the cloud just because it helps us build out that global footprint. It helps us a lot with the the dials we need to operate the business in terms of our opex versus capex. It helps us also get products to market that much faster. We can test things out. We can see how things work before sort of having to to onboard and, and buy servers and things for that as well. Yeah, that's really interesting to think. Your business is probably the the one of the most high speed, other than high speed trading on Wall Street that that happens. Right, you can't right. have latency, can you? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty mind boggling, and that we have to have a, a whole system with uh, people that are on call and making sure that things don't go down. Because yeah, when they go down, it it, it hurts our clients, yeah, and they yeah. they have they have money to spend, and they're they're consumers out there, and they're. We want to make sure that we're getting their their message across. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a, it's definitely a global system, and yeah, that's a good one. Is the high frequency trading? Probably Google Search is another one yeah, that's right, like happening right. around the world in real time. There's not as many that many though. Yeah, yeah. Now, at some point, you you got a relationship with Snowflake. I don't know whether it was before you came on or after, but if you can give us a little bit of the history there, I think that'd be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So we started talking to Snowflake, I think it was in the summer of 2018. We were evaluating lots of different data cloud options for us. It's accelerated very much over the years. And one of the first ways we really started to do in depth there with them is to to create a partnership where we, we allow the results from the ads we purchased to go into Snowflake so that our clients can do analytics on that without having the data movement. So, it, so what that means is you could think of a, a large agency client of ours or a brand. If they're a mutual client of Snowflake and they could see who purchases something or they could see other results of transactions in their platform, they store that in Snowflake. And then we're, we're also putting in Snowflake in the trade desk instance there, things like who was exposed to what ads now we're, we're enabling that client to develop amazing insights and understanding of the effectiveness of their advertising spend 
without having that data move, without having to ask them to send us privacy-centric or uh, directly identifiable information on their users. And we don't have to send the data we have on those users. And it was was a very nice sort of um, fit for both companies. So in, in a way, I think we we help our clients get what they need and your Snowflake is sort of the, a mutual party there. We both benefit from having the same set of brands and, and agencies on your platform. Yeah. So is it basically, are all of your brands and agencies and you all on Snowflake or can they do business with you without Snowflake? I, I don't quite understand. Oh yeah. So we've been in business for a while. So before yeah. we we, yeah. we have lots of data that comes directly into the trade desk. Uh, we have other partners. We have other means from helping them understand the efficacy of, of the, the spend on trade desk. But tr- this stuff we've been doing the past couple of years with Snowflake and has, has accelerated has, is, is a new means to do that. It's been great and very effective. Yeah. Cool, cool. Hey, if you could talk about a couple of the applications you're using Snowflake, uh, the data cloud for, what's the application? What's the benefit you're getting? I think the the main one, there's the Trade Desk version of it, which is what which is the application is Trade Desk putting into Snowflake the exposure, the, the user level exposure to certain ads. Right. And then without having data move it, we can see what the brands being able to do the analysis on on their their what we call conversions or like what they're seeing in purchases or re-engagement with their users. So it's one application use case. The other is a recent one we've done is enable the generation of IDs. So Trade Desk has funded and built a, a industry ID solution. So it's not a Trade Desk solution, but it's called Unified ID2. Mm-hmm. And we have a relationship there where Snowflake is able to help publishers or advertisers or other third-party data companies generate UID2s as a sort of a function, as a tool within Snowflake. So if I am a an advertiser and I've got all my data residing in Snowflake and maybe it's tied to an email address, I would like to generate a UID2 on those email addresses, but I don't want, I don't want to have to send those emails outside of Snowflake. Snowflake enabled is a, a fantastic tool that just does that with inside the, the instance and there is no sort of movement or transport of data. And now, now what you have is all that data now has a new currency. It has a new key by which they can, they can act on it and they can, they can actually buy against it and they can measure impact against it uh, and they never have to move it. Hmm. So does unified ID two does that protect personal uh, data privacy or, or- yeah, absolutely. So, so what it is is a we think of it as a currency. It's it's sort of an interoperable ID that that allows either an advertiser or a, a publisher or or third party data companies as well. So, what it is is think of it this way: as a a, a publisher in that we we talked about it earlier is that value exchange. So, the publisher engages with the consumer. They can ask for a login. Not all publishers do this. We don't expect them all to, but a good portion would do and more and more will over time. They ask for a login. Now, when the, the publisher gets that email, they don't want to have to put that email into the into the exchange, right? It would be like an open string. They don't want, everyone doesn't want their email flying around. Right. So what they do is we, we generate a, an ID on that. It's a, it's a safe ID, which is basically a string of numbers that, that can't be reverse engineered. That, that is then encrypted and that's put into the marketplace. And that's what DSPs can look at to bid on. 
So what happens is the publisher then is able to get the sort of economic benefits of having a identity on their webpage or on their piece of inventory that, that enables the advertisers to bid more on that inventory, just because now they know a little bit more about that person through the, that currency, that common currency. And that helps them get a higher, what we call CPM, which is a higher fee on that, on that advertising. Yeah, I get that now. That's a okay. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 And absolutely. Part of yeah. the economics of the the open internet. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I'm glad that's happening, for all of our privacy's sake. So, Snowflake. I mean, a few years into it, looks like you have several applications going. Where do you see the relationship going from here? I think we'll see a great expansion around the data sharing aspect of it. So it's still it's going well, but it's still very early for us. So we want to enable more advertisers, more publishers to sort of share their data through Snowflake. That allows us to, in a way, like we, we have a great product. We have a great platform that enables targeting and real-time decisioning. We want to make sure that advertisers can take those results and, and sort of see how well it's performing. And I think I see Snowflake as a great means by which to do that. So you can think of it as, the transaction data, maybe that maybe retailers are pushing into Snowflake, that this is a new path that allows them to say, look, my, my advertising on the trade desk is working. And because I can do this through non not data sharing, I, I feel good about the about these results and I feel good about doing it in a, in a privacy safe way. It's a lot of expansion on yeah on that data sharing. And then the UID2 has been fantastic for us. I think we're early here too. We're just starting to work with some uh, some of your publishers and advertiser clients to, right. to get them to start sort of adding this, this new field, this new attribute to uh, their data sets. And yeah. that's, that's another area that's been great. No, that's good. So Bill, where do you see the ed tech technologies going in the next year or so? Right. It's we talked we talked about the speed of which things change. So I, I that that is not slowing down. If, if not, it's it's accelerating. We hear more and more from our clients that they will be spending more and more on programmatic, and that they we spend more and more of their dollars onto the on, on the open internet. One thing also is that the channels by which the inventory that's accessible through through ad tech or or programmatic continues to evolve and continues to get of higher quality. We did a, a panel last week with the chief marketing officers of, of several sort of automotive, CPG, other beverage companies. They all agree that the majority, if not all of their TV budget was going to be transacted digitally in the next two to three years. Hmm. So we see CTV as continuing to be a massive driver of the adoption of, of ad tech. So in a way, we've said it, uh, Frederick Tradesk has said this before, is that everything we've done in display and mobile has sort of been a, a dress rehearsal for getting ready for this for CTV, and I, okay. I think we're starting to see that pay off. Like yeah. this is some of the best ad inventory that's ever been put forward, and to be able to transact on it with data-driven decisioning is uh, is the first time uh, we're doing it at scale, and that'll continue to drive fantastic results for for clients, and also continue to drive great monetization for for publishers. I think I'm hearing, maybe reading between the lines, that you think that the demand side platform model is gaining market share on the walled garden model. Is that, is that happening? Are you predicting that will happen or? I think it, exactly. So I think over time it like yeah. walls come down, like economic forces went out 
if we have access to data, we are building the best results for those publishers and the best results for the clients. I think eventually you see walls decay because right. uh, economic forces are, are strong. So it, it'll take a while, and this is this will be going on for years and years. But I think that that is a longer term trend. That if if you are a publisher, you have access to inventory, you would be better off enabling lots of different platforms to access it, lots of different DSPs. Uh, and you could why why restrict it to just your own advertising tool? Let others participate, and if uh, l- let's see who can perform the best for the advertiser and can give you the publisher the best economics. Yeah. I hope that side wins out. I mean, it's kind of like we don't like monopolies, do we? So, no, it's not great okay. for <laughs> great for the consumer. It's not great for innovation. So, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I think the world is better with lots of options. Yeah, and the open internet is a that, that hopefully that plays out on the open internet. We don't yeah. want just three websites. Now, before I interrupted you, you were going on to a second point, kind of a right, hot trend right, right. in the next year. Yeah, yeah. The the other is, I think. Those that are watch, uh, you know, read on ad tech is is identity continues to be a massive area of investment focus. So how we think about things. So as a little background, as a third party cookie is is eventually going away. This is the, the sort of the third party identifier in in Chrome. So it's already gone in Safari and in Firefox. Chrome is the last of the the big browsers that it's present in. Google was going to deprecate it sooner. They've extended that maybe two years, but eventually it will go away. So I think another sort of thing we'll see over the next couple of years is that that more and more publishers will ask for a login. So this is part of that value exchange we were talking about earlier. They've not had to ask for that because they're able to drop this cookie, this little piece of code on your browser to understand a little bit more about who you are. When that goes away, they're going to they're gonna ask for that login. So asking an email to access a site will become more and more of our user experience. So we'll have to have, and this is where Unified ID comes in. It's a, it's a strong currency. It's a, a backbone to enable that. There could be and will be other identifiers too. I think we're, we're excited for that. This is sort of an industry-wide initiative and all these other IDs can can integrate or be in what we call interoperable with UID2. So our view there is that there'll be more of these value exchanges. There will be more identity in that, are, that gives consumers privacy and control than cookies have done. They haven't done a great job of that on those on that inventory. But you know, there'll be always be a portion, a large portion of the internet that is not locked in. They're just some websites and some experiences that just are not sort of don't lend themselves to being logged in. Check a a quick sports score. I don't know. You do a quick search and you get an answer. You're not going to log in just to get it. And that's completely fine. There's lots of other technologies and things that will be used to inform how we value that that piece of inventory. And it could be things like extrapolating out from the logged in portion. There are things like contextual data, there's publisher data, all those will be leveraged as well to help inform them. But that's gonna be a big piece of how things play out in the next year or so. I see the future. What a fascinating modern age we live in. Is this what the future holds? Hey, I'm gonna ask you to put on your visionary cap here for a minute. Look ahead five years or more. What are the major changes in data management and analytics that you see coming that could really transform business or even society? Right. Okay. Good one. So I see ad tech will continue to play even probably more of a significant role 
in keeping the internet free and open and, and not just rolled up within a few walled gardens. I think the, the industry will begin to appreciate this more and more, how important it is, things like keeping things open and, and accessible and not having sort of concentration of power. And if, if the industry continues to work together and collaborate and solve for some of the privacy and interoperability questions, I think that's going to be a, you know, many years at a great service that will sort of provide for society that will give users lots of choices and whether that's news and entertainment, and how they consume their media will not be constrained or restricted to just a few places. That's great. The other thing is I, I will continue to see, and Snowflake certainly is a big piece of this, is that how data sharing and privacy will will continue to play an important role. I think there'll be a lot more, a lot more advances there. There's a trend with things moving towards the client for some of that, some of that data processing and some of the data analysis. So some of the mobile phones are starting to do that, where they push out to the phone some of that analysis to understand about the user. So the right advertising and interest-based advertising decisions can be made. But maybe the the details about the consumer stayed on the phone. It never left there. That's interesting. That's a great idea. So it's a kind of a new wrinkle on edge computing, right? Exactly. Exactly. And it could happen in the browser too, right? Yeah. So you could you could think of it the same way. And that that's going to require rethinking around how things like the bidded marketplace could happen. Maybe there's elements of it that happen actually on the phone, or they happen in the browser, or on more and more so on the TV, where some of that data resides there, but doesn't have to. And so the consumer is safe, but really the publisher still gets the benefits of that economics. And the advertiser can also get really great return on their spend by because they're you know leveraging smart data. Yeah. And that'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. There's many more years. And then the other is it's related and is also multi-party computation, which is how different data can be shared across companies without it moving, right? And that's one of the big... Tenants, as far as I understand, for Snowflake, and I, I think you'll continue to play a big role there. And I, I think that there'll be some more standards and stuff around that. You'll probably see more of that with um, advertising, not only the targeting, but also the, the measurement and, and, and how we sort of do the analytics of how it's performing is done as well. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Really need to dig deep and get to know the real you. In the real up close and personal. So we always like to finish with a, on a lighter note, a more personal note. And I understand you're a big reader. I, I've been told, and I'm a book author, so this hurts my feelings, that books are going out of style. So I'm glad to see that they're not with, going out of style with you. Uh, yes, I try to. I don't, I don't have as much time as I'd like, but I, I try to read a little, at least a little bit or some every day. So I think it's a good habit. And I kind of go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, or maybe I have a couple going at a time, but... So yeah, it's a great habit to be in. Try to get my kids to do it. Not necessarily successful at that quite yet. Maybe with my daughter, not with my boys yet. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm happy to sort of give a couple of recommendations of some some cool stuff I've been reading lately. One of those is is sort of like I'm not a big sci-fi reader, but this was the first one I'd read in a while. It's called the the Three Body Problem, which is. Mm. I haven't read sci-fi since almost like a long time since I was a kid, maybe, but it's, it's actually a translation from a Chinese sci-fi book. Uh, it's, it's a three book series about going to sound sort of generic, but it's, it's an alien invasion that we, we is happening. We know is happening, but it's going to take them I'm not giving too much away here, but it's, it's going to take them 400 years to get here. 
but we're communicating with them. And how, how does that play out? What, how do we start preparing for this, this eventual uh, battle? And it's actually a lot of the science and stuff about how we communicate about them, how we prepare for them, prepare for this, how we like a lot of this, the, the psychological effects on people that are realizing that, well, it may not be me that's fighting this battle, but like some generation oh of me God. may be. Hey, you know, this sounds like climate change right here. We don't have 400 years notice. Right. We, like, we, gotta, we have about four years to do something about it. I'm going to do something very self-serving right now, which is, so I just published a book called The Pivot. Nice. Addressing Global Problems Through ro- Local Action. And it's about addressing climate change. So you would, you'd win a lot of points with me if you added this to your, to your, your book pile. All right. I'm going to, I'm, I'm searching for it now. Oh, instantaneous <laughs> gratification. I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, this is, this has been a great conversation, Bill. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I feel like you really got into some of the detail uh, for people who are familiar with ed tech to see where the technology is going. But I also feel like it was almost like a primer in ed tech for people who aren't in the business and just hearing about how fast things have to happen, you know, like zero latency. And just one last thought is, I forget who the guy was, but it was some retailer around 1900 said the problem with marketing is that half of your money is wasted. You just don't know which half. Yep. Well, hopefully the ad tech business is really putting that one to rest. I mean, if not already in the near future. So that's kind of an encouraging thought. Yes. Yeah. And it, uh, thanks. Uh, that is, it's uh, what you call it. I used to know Wonder Man or it's, it's a retailer. It's a famous. It was, I think it was like out of Chicago. Was it Marshall right. Field? Something like that. So, something like that. Yeah. 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 I should know that. Uh, I did at or one point. John, oh, it's John Wanamaker out of Philly. Yes. That is it. That's uh, who it was. It was in W. Yeah. W. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes, right. And the other thing to think of it is like, it's a great service for the world. I mean, like allocating funds and the economics to publishers and, and that, that create news, that create content, that create entertainment, podcasts, like, is a great service to give. You can't all pay for all of our media. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's great to see that allocating it where in, in privacy safe ways is a, is a good service and fun products to build. Well, that's good. Good note to end on. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Really enjoyed it. The Data Cloud World Tour is making 21 stops around the globe so you can learn about the latest innovations at Snowflake's Data Cloud at a venue near you. Join your fellow data leaders at one of our full-day events to network with Snowflake customers and technology partners, attend educational breakout sessions, and learn how to drive more value from your data. Find an event near you at www.snowflake.com slash data dash cloud dash world dash tour.